You are tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Honolulu Board of Water Supply is calling for customers to cut back on water use. While several of our wells are shut down to make sure fuel doesn't further contaminate our drinking water aquifer, listeners asked, is the military doing its share to conserve? This morning, we talked to Captain Randall Harmeyer, an engineer and officer for the Public Works Division of Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, about what it's doing to reduce water usage overall. Today, we have one well that is supplying the water for our distribution system, our Waiava well, and for full and complete use on the base. So what we're doing now is taking a look at how we're using the water and where we can conserve that resource. We know that we're in a bit of a dry spell across the island. And so the major thing that we've done is reduced our irrigation, which is a major use of our water on the base. Our irrigation has been reduced by roughly 50%. So the the irrigation is used in housing communities as well as some of the the main landscaped areas of the base and then our golf courses and athletic fields. And so that's been cut significantly and that saves about two to three million gallons a day, which is a little over 10% of our normal overall use. So that's the major effort that we've done to conserve water. Other things that we're doing is we purchased nearly 2,000 low-flow shower heads. We're going to install those in all of our fitness centers and swimming pool areas so that we can conserve as much water there. And then our barracks and dorms where our sailors and airmen live, we're going to make sure that each of those units has a low-flow shower head. How does it work on the military bases when those homes in those neighborhoods probably don't have meters? That's right. So our system wasn't built like a normal utility system where each home has a meter and each building has a meter. We have primary meters at various points in the distribution system so that we can see how the flow is going generally around the system, which is quite large. You know, we have roughly 93,000 people that use our water each day. Many of those are the homes, but again, the meters are not as numerous as a normal system. So What we do know is that what we're pumping out of the well and when we have secured irrigation, we can see the difference in how much demand there is on the well. And we can see in various areas of the base where a meter might be reading a little bit, you know, or significantly less after we've secured irrigation. But at the homes, our residents uh, have been informed and they know as well that it's a bit of a dry spell and we need to conserve that resource as well. And so we've asked them if they're going to water their lawns on the base, which they're allowed to do like anybody living out in town, that they water wisely, not overwater, and also water during early morning and prevent as much evaporation as possible. And then I believe they've also taken to heart the general request across the island to conserve and use water wisely in their homes. Has the military had to put a call out to conserve? Have you had to ask for mandatory conservation ever? In the past, I've heard that various times there's been conservation measures similar to on the island in the late 2000s. For example, there was a request for residents to, you know, water on alternate days, not water as much as they normally would. And then I'm sure we had reduced our irrigation at that time as well. And then on occasion, if there's a maintenance issue with our system and we have a little bit of a reduced capacity, we'd ask the same request. So some things we control, we control main areas that we irrigate. We can turn those on and off. But then in those several thousand homes, you know, we ask for voluntary measures. That, to my knowledge, there's never been a mandatory reduction. But, you know, one of the other things we're doing today is we've turned off the car washing facilities that we have on the base and asked our residents to not wash their cars. And I should point out there are some other measures that we're thinking of taking working on, and that would be changing areas that are grass into something like artificial turf. There's some opportunities to do that, and that would allow us to not have an irrigation demand in the future in certain areas, and so we're looking into some of those measures as well. And the city is uh, taking steps to curtail some of the watering at the golf courses. You know, Mm -hmm. what's the military doing, you know, with their golf courses, and is there any plan to try and maybe use some of the water that's being pumped out of the Red Hill shaft that is filtered, uh, can you divert that over to those landscaped areas? Yeah, so two questions there, and that's good. Thanks for asking. 
same with uh, irrigation on just general landscaping. We have asked our golf courses also to be strategic about when they irrigate and also reduce, generally speaking, about 50%. And so they have done that. Of course, it's important for us to keep the land in good condition. Golf courses are a lot of land, so we're not going to let erosion or dead vegetation cause a bigger problem. But they have indeed reduced that irrigation as well. And so you might notice that if you're a golfer. Uh, But we're making sure that the land continues to be kind of secure and prevent erosion. The second question about what might be done with the water that we're currently pumping from the Red Hill shaft and diverting into the Halaba stream, which is, you know, it's a separate system completely from the distribution system, not connected at all. So that there is active consideration of how we might reuse that water, either a potable or non-potable way. So that's a significant engineering challenge. So the original system was pumped from the well into our distribution network after treatment. So now that's physically been diverted to be treated and filtered through granular activated carbon tanks. And now the question is how to get it back into some sort of productive use. So our engineers and you know environmental scientists are working on a method that we might be able to do that. There are various courses of action significant construction and design effort, and then also permitting. If we ever decided we had a good plan to do that, we'd have to definitely be closely coordinated with the state to make sure that any use of that water was in accordance with permits and the state guidance. You know, a thought just occurred to me, because there is a lot of talk right now about a possible moratorium if we get into the really dry months here later in the year. So some developers are a little concerned about their projects, but I'm just curious, is there anything as far as like construction projects that the military's got, you know, down the road? We do have ongoing construction. Some of the larger military construction projects involve our peers, and in the near future we'll have a new dry dock. These are not necessarily high water uses, and so it's not very comparable with building residential units or other high water use type of facilities. At the moment, we don't have any new barracks or new housing areas that would create a long-term demand, but we do have construction for various military facilities, and oftentimes they're replacing old ones, and so there may be kind of a net zero effect on water use. But in all construction, the good thing is is we can put in brand new pipes, brand new meters, and all of the types of features that you know use less water, basically water conservation measures built into the projects where there is water use. Just to be real clear again, so as far as the usage of water by the military families and that distribution system, that's all pretty much back to normal. And then there's still the pumping that is ongoing with the Red Hill shaft. Right. That's correct. So we are pumping from Red Hill. And the idea there is to contain any contaminants that may be on the surface of the aquifer there to ensure that we can capture whatever contaminants may be there and then remove them from the aquifer. And so it's a bit of a, you know, it's using that water in a different manner, basically just to keep the contaminants contained. But again, that's completely 100% separate from our potable distribution system, which is fully functioning and supplying potable water to all of the customers' emission uses that we had before. Okay, and that's being pumped from the Wyaba shaft? Correct. Okay, all right. Well, Captain, we certainly appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Captain Randy Harmeyer, Director of Public Works for Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. He says, in addition to the calls for reduced water use, it is now exploring the use of treated wastewater for irrigation to save potable water for drinking. reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us with an update on the Red Hill water situation. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Catherine. It's good to be here. Yeah. So the headline in your story is uh, what Department of Health is saying that the contamination levels of fuel are actually decreasing. That's right. So um, it's, you know, cautiously optimistic news. Um, that the levels of TPHD and TPHO seem to be um, going down, which is good. 
Um, it, they said it's too soon to say um, what is causing that. You know, the Navy is doing a lot of um, pumping of the Red Hill well, filtering, and then discharging into the Halava stream. Um, and, you know, hopefully this is a sign that it's working, but DOH said it's too soon to say. But um, definitely good news that they're saying that the contamination is stable and possibly contracting. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about, what, some 1,300 parts per billion um, uh, back in December. And as of, what, last month, they were just double-digit? Right. As of last month, it was under the health department's environmental action level, basically the safety level. Um, So that's a really good sign. Um, You know, there's been a lot of concern about where exactly the contamination is, um, where it may be moving, um, and whether it's even possible to get it all cleaned up. Even the experts that have studied the aquifer for many years say they only have a like a small understanding of what the aquifer looks like underground. Um, So there was a lot of worry that the contamination could move towards civilian wells or who knows where, and that's something that's actively being studied right now. Um, But this is, you know, sort of the first indication that, well, maybe... Maybe it's good news. Yes. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And, you know, uh, I know a, a lot of the geologists and hydrologists that are, are working on this, you know, all these, the, the best minds are at the table to try and figure out, you know, how to deal with this situation. But, you know, they are just operating on theories because there's a lot that we just don't know. Exactly. Yeah, the aquifer has not been particularly well studied um, as an area of science, unfortunately. Um, so they're just trying to learn as much as they can about it now. Um, but uh, the, the flushing, uh, or rather the, the pumping and filtering is still going on. The Navy is removing about 5 million gallons of water per day and running it through these um, these filters, um, giant filters um, above ground, and then putting it in the whole lava stream. So, um, yeah, hopefully... It keeps getting better. Yeah, and uh, the Department of Health and you know made this announcement uh, uh, yesterday. Um, but there's also some developing news on the on the legal front as well. Those challenges, That's right? So if you recall, um, the Department of Health put out this emergency order in December, telling the military that they had to defuel the Red Hill fuel facility. And the military and actually Department of Justice um, fought against that in state and federal court. The military has since agreed to stay or pause those proceedings. Um, and they're not, it's not that the cases are closed now, um, but in federal court, the, there was a stipulation the parties have agreed to, to pause things. In state court, actually, Judge Crabtree has denied the military's motion. Um, and so that case is going to be kind of ongoing, and we'll keep an eye on it. Um, but right now, we're operating um, on the assumption that the military does plan to defuel, as they've said. Um, as for when exactly that will happen, they haven't really specified a timeline. And the other thing that piqued my interest is that your story said that uh, uh, DOH, the Department of Health, plans to issue a new emergency order. <laughs> Yeah, that was news to us. They said that yesterday. Um, they said that the new emergency order will supersede the the other one that was issued in December. They didn't divulge any details about exactly what will be in the new one, um, but they said they're working with the Attorney General's office to put that together. Yeah, so it will be uh, uh, curious to see what all that entails um, and what that means going forward. But certainly uh, with the levels of contaminants going down, I mean, that's that's a bright spot. That's a good thing. Right. I mean, we just, we hope we it means what we hope it means. Um, <laughs> yes. And that, you know, it's not a total loss in the aquifer. Um, you know, right now the Board of Water Supplies walls are still closed, the Halapa shaft being the most significant one. And the island is kind of grappling with the impacts of that potential water shortages this summer. If we could get those wells back up and running, um, that would be great. But the Board of Water Supply has made clear they're absolutely not going to do that until they're certain that the water they're pumping from it is safe. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be watching all all for that. But thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Kathy. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. To read her story, visit sylvie.org. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the Distance Executive MBA and Master of HR is May 19th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dan Melman, author of Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the quest for meaning in the modern world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The HOMA Select Talks series offers new perspectives and insights from curators and staff about select artworks from the permanent collection. More at honolulumuseum.org slash events. The threat levels for cybercrime on high alert with global tensions increasing. In recent headlines, Homeland Security thwarted a hacking attempt on Hawaii, and the FBI just released data about online fraud schemes, and Hawaii's losses are staggering. Joining us this morning, FBI Special Agent Stephen Merrill. He oversees the FBI's efforts across the Pacific region, including Guam, Saipan, and American Samoa. In Hawaii, uh, particularly uh, on the criminal side, we tend to uh, really focus our efforts on corruption, among other things. Uh, And uh, we do have a number of other violations we look into, which you and I will talk about in a second, but certainly corruption uh, and uh, many national security matters as well. And, you know, we've been reading the headlines about the the cyber threats and and the attacks, you know, g- given that our global situation is, is unstable right now. The FBI is you know, on the alert for just any undue influence that any, you know, foreign countries may have on our uh, election systems and our just systems in general. Yeah, that's right. We, we're paying particular focus uh, in lieu of the uh, conflict, Ukraine and Russia, we are have our guard up and we are uh, working very hard to uh, educate the public and private sectors both to be on the lookout. We certainly expect that at some point we'll see more cyber attacks as a result of some adversarial action. And, uh, you know, that goes two ways. It's both in terms of protecting our national security uh, through our cyber, particularly our infrastructure, uh, but also uh, criminal attacks against the private sector in efforts to steal information about our citizens and our companies and some of our secrets. And earlier this year, I know we were a bit nervous when uh, someone tried to, I think, hack in or, or attack our our uh, emergency services, those are first responders, right? Our, our ambulance system, 911. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's scary. It's scary. We can't go without that. That is what's keeping us in many ways from protecting everybody in Hawaii. So if those defenses go down, we're quite vulnerable and we're working very hard to fortify those systems. And also we as a, a government, a whole government approach are working with the private sector and the public sector to try to uh, make sure that if there is some sort of an intrusion, some sort of vulnerability, we can react immediately and get those systems back online. And most importantly for the FBI is pursue those who are doing the attacks and stopping them so they don't do it again to another potential victim. Yeah. And, and we know you can't you know really get into detail when you've got active investigations, but cyber fraud is a big deal. And and you just released a, a report nationally, you know, that shows the breakdown of the states and, and how vulnerable we are. Yeah, I'm glad you saw that. I'm glad you mentioned it as well. Yeah, we spend quite a bit of time uh, collecting data from all 50 states in a number of criminal realms. But using this as an example, it was really shocking to see the rise over the years, including from 20 to 21, in terms of not only the amount of loss that our victims had seen through fraud, using the internet as a tool, uh, but also just the number of people that had been victimized. And here in Hawaii, uh, and you can look at these results, as you mentioned, online, those numbers increased. And I've made a significant amount of outreach efforts, and thank you for giving me the forum to do it here, to talk about you know those perhaps most vulnerable are being targeted the most and being victimized the most, and those are our elderly 
And people statistically over 60 uh, fall into this group of victims. And what makes them unique is not only the number of victims, but again, the amount, the loss amount. These are, we're talking about people who have literally lost their entire life savings. So what my hope is, and the FBI's hope, is that we can prevent these attacks before they happen, educate the public as to what they can do to protect themselves so that we don't have to, in turn, go out and investigate these cases. Uh, I'd much rather have people not lose the money in the first place than have to chase it down and hope that we are able to recover the money. Because, again, these people uh, can't live without this money, as you'd expect. It's a very sad situation when someone who doesn't have much money loses it all. And, you know, some of these scams you hear about, I'm just surprised just even amongst the people that I know how many people have fallen victim to the grandparent scam. I agree. Uh, And using the elderly, again, as an example, you know, what makes them in many ways people consider them our greatest generation is because they're such a trusting group of people. And they care so much about their families. Using the grandparent scam as an example, what grandparent wouldn't immediately respond to do anything they could to save their child and their grandchildren? And then the romance scam, again, you know, th- that's why these scams, unfortunately, are successful for the criminal side. They're going after a group of people uh, that tend to be much more trusting. And my advice, again, uh, on both counts, is to really take a step back, try to separate the emotion from the reality of the situation. And when it comes especially to giving money out, only give money, send money to someone you know and you can actually see and someone you trust. If if they're anonymous, they've reached out to you online uh, or via email and you don't see them, you can't touch them, then uh, you really need to be careful uh, about sending it because the scammers are out there and they're trying to exploit every single person that they possibly could. And, you know, we've just come through uh, this major influx of money. You know, we've had a lot of federal money released because of the pandemic. And we've also seen a rise in scams, you know, everything from unemployment claims to your tax refunds. How do you folks divvy up who gets responsibility, you know, when you come across these crimes? Yeah, it's a good question because we're talking about $3 trillion of aid the U.S. has put out since the pandemic began, specifically to help people who need it. And of course, there's millions of people who need help out of work, you know, many other distressing situations financially. But when you're talking about $3 trillion, that is an amount that the FBI and any other agency is not big enough individually to look at. So Luckily, uh, you know, we have a great system here that has been set up where the FBI and many other federal partners uh, and state and local partners, too. But whether it be the Small Business Administration, the Department of Labor, all the other federal law enforcement agencies, we are all doing the same thing and working as a team through the Washington Department of Justice, through our headquarters, trying to recover that money, investigate those people that are scamming and continue to scam the pandemic fraud that's out there. And again, we're talking about not millions, not billions, but trillions of dollars. For the folks here in Hawaii and, and across the Pacific, you know, I don't know, is there any anything that we're particularly, I don't know, vulnerable to? In terms of fraud schemes? Yeah. I would go back to the elder fraud. That, that seems to be something that is really, uh, we're really particularly vulnerable about, uh, for. And I think it's just more of an education more than anything just to let people know that they need to be careful online. And, you know, we've heard the call, you know, since the beginning of the year, right, be really careful. And, and there have been a lot of tips about how to protect yourself. It's, it can be as simple as just turning off your devices so no one can, can get in the back door, uh, you know, something simple like that. that. That's true. There's a lot of simple fixes. And, you know, the, the most simple mantra is if, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, you know, whether it be turning off your devices or just asking for another means of communication. If you're communicating to someone with someone on a social media app, for instance, have them call you or do a Zoom call somewhere where you could see them or, most importantly, do something in person. And if they're pushing you away, and this is what the criminals will do, you know, they'll claim to be overseas or in a position where they can't communicate, then that is a what we call a clue in the law enforcement world. Step away and uh, move on because, in all likelihood, that's probably just a scammer. And you've got a background in financial crimes. Is there a case you can share any details about? Just something that maybe that you folks are particularly proud about taking down? I could point to plenty of things. But I, I do want to highlight yesterday, uh, a jury came back on one of our cases in a healthcare fraud matter. And I, I just couldn't be prouder of our team. 
and it gets to what you were kind of asking about with the financial crimes. What we do in all our investigations, whether they be white-collar crime, traditional, or gangs or violent crime, is we follow the money and we track things, and we're very meticulous in going through records, collecting records, and, and analyzing them. And in healthcare fraud, particularly, uh, we're able to painstakingly go through medical records, go through uh, financial records, and uh, as a result of our investigations, we proved to a jury, and the jury came back uh, with a successful conviction on a number of counts, thanks to the hard work done by our forensic accountants, by our investigators, and by our, by our analysts. And you're talking about the Puana case? Yes, that's right. Yesterday, uh, there was a 38 count successful prosecution. Uh, and who knows where the case will lead? There's a sentencing plan for down the road, but just super proud of the U.S. Attorney's Office this, in this instance out of the Southern District of California, as well as a team of FBI employees that uh, really want to make sure that, you know, the, the system is uh, above board and that, like all the things we do, that the public has trust in our government, in our democracy, and that's why we do what we do to protect the American people and protect the Constitution. And it's going back to simple, something as simple as follow the money. Yeah, that's right. That is a traditional FBI uh, strategy, and it works because whether our criminals, whatever they're doing, they're using money. They're either collecting money, gaining money, criminal proceeds, or they're using money to facilitate schemes, whether they be you know terrorism or violent crime or organized crime. So that system of investigation following the money is very beneficial to us. And the FBI, we're always hiring people. Uh, it used to be traditionally FBI would hire agents that are accountants and lawyers, but the accountants were still hiring. We have a large number of forensic accountants in the FBI, but we're looking for people who can solve problems. Uh, and part of that process is going through financial records. All right. Well, Stephen Merrill, we really appreciate your time here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and good job on the, on the case yesterday. Thank you. We've been talking with FBI Special Agent in Charge Stephen Merrill about public corruption and the threat of cybercrime and fraud in Hawaii. The FBI welcomes your tips. To report a crime or pass on info, just head to tips at FBI.gov. You can also go to the Internet Crimes Complaint Center at IC3.gov or just call 808-566-4300. You know, the state has set a goal to power our islands with 100% renewable energy by 2045. But scientists say that if we want to avoid the most disastrous impacts of global warming, carbon emissions need to start declining worldwide by 2025. So how can we pick up the pace in transitioning our energy economy? Leah Stokes, professor at UC Santa Barbara and an expert in both the policy and politics of energy transformation, spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about whether or not Hawaii can meet its goals. If we are able to successfully transition the grid so that it is renewable, how close will that get us in the climate change fight? That's a great question, and it's one that I've spent probably close to 20 years trying to answer. And it's actually quite a hopeful answer. If we can clean up our electricity system by getting to 100% clean or renewable power, what we can do is use that clean power to power our homes, our cars, even parts of heavy industry. And that actually adds up to three quarters or 75% of the climate solution. So if we think about the pollution that we create right now, we can eliminate about three quarters of that pollution by just moving to 100% clean electricity and then using that clean electricity to power our homes, our cars, and even parts of our industry. The pace and scale of this transition is pretty unrelenting. Uh, we have to get to uh, something like 80% clean power in the country by 2030. That's what President Biden says we need to do. And that's a doubling from around 40% clean power today. And interestingly, Hawaii is pretty much on track for that. They're at about close to 40% today. And really, the goal should be to get to 80% clean by 2030. The current goal is to get to only 40% by 2030 in this state. But really, what we need to be doing is doubling clean power this decade. And you had the opportunity to speak to some longtime activists who are looking at this issue specifically in Hawaii. What was their sentiment about the progress that we've been able to make, as well as perhaps the pushback towards meeting those goals? Yeah, I had a great conversation with a number of activists from 
groups like the Sierra Club who have been working to intervene at cases at the Public Utility Commission, which is the agency in this state that helps to oversee the electric utility, um, makes helps them make decisions. And, you know, some of the issues they raised with me were, for example, a very large project that is being developed on the Big Island right now to cut down trees and burn them for power. This is not just not a great idea from a climate uh, and even air pollution perspective. It also is an extremely expensive project. They shared with me, for example, that if that project moves forward on the Big Island, that it will actually raise electricity rates, that that project is more expensive than burning oil, even at today's oil prices, which is shocking given how expensive oil is right now. The project costs half a billion dollars to make. It's extremely expensive. And what they're planning to do is cut down invasive trees, I believe in a eucalyptus grove, but there's only seven years of trees to burn. And so what is the plan after that for this project? When you start talking about climate change and you start talking about renewable energy in particular, there are all these dates and deadlines that start getting flown around. One that is commonly attached to many international climate goals is 2050. Here locally, Hawaiian Electric Industries wants to reduce their carbon emissions by 70 percent by 2030. Mm -hmm. And while these dates are closer every day, I think many people still consider them to be the future. But just here in Honolulu, we have an imminent climate transitioning coming up. Our coal plant is supposed to shut down, according to state law, in September of 2022. Mm -hmm. What have the activists and the policy leaders that you are speaking with going to do about that transition? Well, it's very important that states all across the country transition away from coal as fast as possible. What scientists have been telling us is that we have to cut our carbon pollution by about half this decade in order to uh, limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, remember, we've already warmed the planet one degree, so we're more than halfway <laughs> to that temperature budget, so to speak. Um, so we've got a lot to do in eight short years. Cut shutting down coal plants are very important. However, there are concerns because some of the ways that uh, the electricity system is going to be supported in that transition away from that coal plant is by using batteries, which are a really great thing. However, a battery can store any kind of energy. You could burn oil and create electricity and then put that electricity into the battery. You could have a wind project, create electricity and put that into the battery. You could, of course, have solar. And so the battery is actually kind of neutral to whatever the fuel source is. And so some people have been raising concerns that without more planning to get more renewable energy on the grid, without more focus on making sure that those wind projects, for example, are prioritized when they are producing electricity, that some of the batteries that are made could end up storing oil. And that's a very, very inefficient thing to do because when you burn the oil, just like any kind of energy conversion, you lose some of the energy, right? This is like the first law of thermodynamics or the second law. It's like when you burn something, you lose some of the energy to waste heat. And so when you convert oil into electricity, you lose a bunch of energy. And then when you store it in a battery, you lose a bunch more. So that's not a very efficient process, not just from a carbon perspective, but also from an energy perspective. And so people want to make sure that the electric utility locally is planning so that when we get rid of that coal plant, that it's really renewables and clean energy that's going to replace it, not just oil being stored in a battery. Hmm. We're talking about the whole menu of energy options today. And of course, in Hawaii, despite all of the gains that we have made in renewables, petroleum is still top of the list. Mm -hmm. Recently, there has been conversation about the dependence that we have on oil, not just in terms of our climate goals, but in terms of the financial cost. And of course, in Hawaii, always whether or not we have a sustainable system were we to get separated from, for instance, the continent, were we to be cut off from our resources. People have been feeling gas prices very strongly, mm -hmm. and we do import a significant amount of our crude oil from Russia. Mm -hmm. It feels like this might be a ripe moment to reconsider, just in a social context, what our relationship is to oil and petroleum. However, 
it feels reminiscent of the conversations we had during the pandemic when carbon emissions dropped. And we've seen as we've moved into a stage of recovery from the pandemic, carbon emissions are back up. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we'll be able to sustain this social moment and continue to have this conversation as hopefully the Ukrainian crisis resolves? Yes, I think that this is something happening all across the world, all across the United States, and of course here on these islands, that people are thinking about their relationship to oil, given the really high global price, given how oil has been fueling dictatorships like Vladimir Putin's dictatorship in Russia. You know, people don't really want to rely on this resource, but it's hard for them to break their relationship to oil, right? You need to buy an electric vehicle, for example, or put solar on your roof with batteries. That costs money. And so this is why, for example, President Biden's bill in Congress that hopefully will be back on the agenda next week is so important. This is the Build Back Better agenda, and it includes $555 billion in clean energy and climate investments. It would allow people to, for example, buy an electric vehicle for a lot less money. It would allow them to get a heat pump or solar hot water heater in their home in Hawaii for very little money through basically tax credits. And that is going to unlock huge amounts of money to make it more affordable for people to make choices that will not only reduce their reliance on oil, but make it easier for them to pay for their energy costs. Because, for example, if you have a solar hot water heater, as many people in these islands do, you don't have to pay money, really, not a lot, to heat your water because basically the sun heats it directly. So you don't have to burn something in your home in order to do it. It's a very efficient process. Well, then why aren't more people doing it? Because there's an upfront cost to put that project into your home, right? You want to install that solar hot water heater, you need some money upfront to do it. And so the federal government's bill is going to provide some of that upfront money. And another idea to help people afford these things is what's called on-bill financing. That doesn't necessarily sound very interesting, but what it means is that the utility can partner with you and say, hey, we want you to save money on your next bill. We want you to get these efficient technologies in your home. How about you pay the same amount or, in fact, less on your electricity bill? We put this new technology in your home, and then we share the benefits. The, the electric utility that helped you finance that new solar hot water in your, heater in your home, they take some of the cost savings, and you take some of the cost savings. And that makes it easier for you to afford that upfront cost. So really, these clean energy technologies are cheaper over the long run for people. Having an electric vehicle like I do, it's actually cheaper to own and operate. Having a hot water system that uses the sun is cheaper, right? You use the sun. But to get that system in the first place, that's the tricky issue. It's really about that upfront cost and how do we make sure we pay for it. So we need electric utilities. We need the federal government. We need the state government to actually figure out ways to make it more affordable for people to buy these technologies in the first place. One of the things that the latest IPCC report also made explicit was the responsibility of countries that industrialized early in our current climate crisis. They said that on average, someone who lives in an industrialized country like the United States produces far more emissions than someone who does not. Mm -hmm. But that is not spread evenly over individuals in a particular society. When we're talking about these types of consumer choices, not everyone mm -hmm. has the opportunity or the means to buy an electric car or they do not drive. Mm -hmm. There are people who are not homeowners and do not control the decisions that are made, for instance, in their apartment building. Mm -hmm. What are the individual choices that those folks can make mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to work towards a collective solution? Yeah. Well, this is why I don't say that it's all up to the individual, because there's a lot of structure in society. There's inequality. There is, you know, homeownership and renting and different choices that different people can make that's baked into our society. So we need to think about what are the incentives to get landlords, to get electric utilities, to get public transit operators to make these decisions so that people who maybe don't have as much power in society who, to spend money to make these decisions, that they get better options at the end of the day. Because it's not all about choice. Not everything is a choice, right? For example, if you live in the United States, 
there isn't always a train that you can take to go between two places. So unlike in Europe, if there isn't even a choice to take a train, well, how exactly are you supposed to avoid flying if you have to go from point A to point B? So the infrastructure around us is really critical to the choices that we even can make. I want to say thank you so much for your time today, and I appreciate your, the perspective you bring to our islands as someone who understands the entire network and decision-making that many states are going through right now. When you look at Hawaii and the work that is being done here, if you were to give us a letter grade, <laughs> professor. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. What would I give? I think maybe somewhere between a B plus and an A minus, which maybe is not what people would want to hear. I think some people think it's an A or an A plus and that um, Hawaii is really on the cutting edge. And in some ways that's true. But I think sometimes we can rest on our laurels. We can say, okay, well, we've got good ambition. We're making good progress. And we can forget just how far and how fast we need to go. The clean energy transition, you know, doesn't reward A pluses for kind of middling efforts, even though you may not be able to find that many places in the world that are putting as much effort in as as they're putting in here. Because climate change really requires massive progress at a very fast pace. That means we have to get a lot of solar deployed even faster. We have to build wind projects with community input even faster, right? There's really no space for procrastinating because we really cannot afford to go any slower. If anything, it's got to go even faster. That was energy expert Leah Stokes speaking with HPR's Savannah Harriman-Pote. You can find more of our discussion with Stokes on the conversation page of hawaiipublicradio.org. Stokes is giving a talk at 6.30 tonight at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. We'll have details on our website. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that choose to reinforce their brand with us. Mahalo to Nairit Hawaii and Montessori Community School. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Hawaii's first Media Teacher of the Year was named this week Moanalua Elementary School's Norma Gonzalez, or Mrs. G, as she's known by her students, received the honor from Olelo Community Media at its 19th Annual Youth Exchange Awards Gala. The award was introduced this year and determined by a combination of votes from students, teachers, school administrators, and families. Gonzalez took some time to talk to the Conversations Russell Subiano via Zoom this morning. I found your page on the Moanalua Elementary School website, Mrs. G's Wonderful Computer Science Technology class. I love that. I could tell immediately that you have an incredible enthusiasm for technology and teaching. Why do you love it so much? Actually, I was thinking about that just last night. I went to dinner with some friends and they were congratulating me on the award that I won. And I just said, I can't believe I won this award. And they looked at me and they were like, what do you mean you can't believe? It's who you are, Norma. You, you, you just love media. You love technology. And I thought about that. And it made me think about my childhood. It made me think about my father. You know, he introduced our family. Back in the day, we had an eight millimeter video camera. So he came home one day with a video camera and I was immediately just, wow, what is that? And what does it do? And so... We had a lot of great family memories creating family videos. And my dad would turn into Walter Cronkite anytime he was in front of the camera. And I would turn into a newscaster when anytime I was in front of the camera. And I just have that memory. It was happy, you know, those good, good family moments creating videos. And then my father was also a, a pastor. And so he would, he had a radio program. And I would watch him and he made a studio in his bedroom. And I would watch him as he's creating his content. 
content. And then as life went on, Apple created this awesome software called iMovie. So I became an iMovie uh, addict before screen addiction was ever existed. You know, <laughs> as life continued, I became an educator and I became a mother and naturally made videos for my family, videos for my church. And then uh, I went to school got my master's degree in instructional technology because it's something that I was genuinely interested in and love to, to learn more about and how to use it in my classroom. And lo and behold, I learned that media is a powerful way to teach content. So students can use their voice in, in, in media, use your voice to show that they understand what they are learning. I can tell by your enthusiasm that it really, that you really do love it. What's the reaction of your students? When I think about kids going to school, sometimes they, you know, they may not enjoy math or history or English. Is this a subject that your kids get excited about? Oh, yes. You know, today our, our, our children don't watch TV. They watch YouTube. I ask them, what is your favorite channel? And they just look at me like, no, nah, what? We watch YouTube or they, they're into social media like TikTok. They love creating content. They like being part of it. They like to choose what they want to watch. And so anytime they come into my room and they see cameras, you know, they see lights, they see the green screen, they're immediately drawn to it. It's just a natural thing for this generation, you know, <laughs> the social media generation to be drawn into, into wanting to learn how to use that. How do you use that, Mrs. G? How do you use the green screen? How do you make the backdrop disappear? It's an engaging content to teach because they're naturally yeah. drawn to it. Let's just say I have no discipline problems in my computer lab. When students walk in, they follow directions because they want to. You're teaching students as young as kindergarten and as old as sixth grade. What are you teaching kids just starting school? And what are you teaching those about to enter middle school in sixth grade? Well, it's funny because my kindergartners come into my lab and they want to touch my screens. And I'm like, no, don't touch my screens. I have to clean them. I have to teach them what a mouse is. They don't know what a mouse is. It's old technology for them. You know, the, the, these kindergartners, they, it's all about touch screen for them. They use their parents' cell phones. They all have their own iPads and they touch the screen. So that's lesson number one. Don't touch my screens. <laughs> but it's just amazing the the generation that's that's growing up today. It's, it's so intuitive for them. Technology is intuitive. And you would think, oh, it's so hard to teach technology to little five-year-olds and six-year-olds. And it's actually not. It's really simple. It's a simple concept for them. I do teach keyboarding skills. I teach standards in computer science. And the software and curriculum is out there to reach at their level. So all the way through K through six, we're teaching computer science. And the upper grades, I teach more of the media, the cameras, pull out the cameras and teach them how to build stories and teach them how to present their content in a creative way. And they love to do it. Like I always tell them, you know, creativity is intelligence, having fun. And they are having fun. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of educators during the pandemic. Many of them had said, have said that the ability to do distance learning via Zoom and other chat services is the adaptation that they may continue to integrate into learning in the post-pandemic era. What do you see as the next significant technological innovation in education? Hopefully we have the professional development. So a lot of our educators can use technology without the stress. You know, it was very stressful because we were building the plane as it was flying <laughs> during the pandemic. We had teachers who are not as tech savvy having to teach online. And so, and, and then as the year progressed, they had students in the classroom and then students at home, which was very difficult and very challenging for teachers to juggle both. What I see in the future is kind of what I'm seeing today in small areas in our school, where some teachers whose kids who call in sick or have COVID, they are still logging in and taking instruction online. So teachers are still doing both. And that's really cool because now kids can still have access to education, even if they're homesick, they, they're, they're still learning. On your page, you state that the school's focus is on being effective and ethical users of technology. What does that mean? Well, effective is using technology the best way as far as to advance a child's education. A lot of times, we know students are traditional ways. You have your worksheet, you have your book, paper, pencil, and then you're kind of doing the same thing on your computer, filling in blanks, right? That's what we're trying to get away from that. What we want to do with the way technology is going now is we want students to use the tools in technology like Google Chrome, 
Google Classroom, Google Docs, Pages, anything that technology offers, any tools that technology offers us. The key is for the students to know what tools to use to create their content, to create their media. Now, what am I going to use to produce this report or to advance my studies? You know, where am I going to search at? It's not just filling in blanks. How do we use this, this tool that we have, this hardware that we have called a computer and a laptop to advance? And so it's teaching children how to use technology. The ethical part is, which we're seeing a lot in the upper grades, <laughs> they're very savvy. Your, our kids are very savvy. They know it's so easy. You know, you just Google search a topic that you want and you just copy and paste. And it's a problem in education, right? So it's teaching them how to use it ethically. And that is something that has to be taught. And then the issue of cyberbullying, how to deal with that, that has to be taught. Behavior has to be taught. Good behavior has to be taught. A wise professor of mine said, the way children act offline is the way they'll act online. Uh, as part of winning the award, you also received a yes. to anywhere Alaska Airlines flies. So where are you going to go? I'm just going to go home for Christmas. I've been living in Hawaii for eight years. I've never been home for Christmas. I live in California, the Palm Springs area, Coachella Valley. And that's where mom is. And that's where my family is. And I'm so excited. I'll be home for Christmas for the first time since I moved away. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Norma. I, I really Thank enjoyed you. talking to you. All right. That one was Wanalua Elementary School's Norma Gonzalez, Mrs. G, talking with HPR Russell Subiono. Gonzalez was named Hawaii's Media Teacher of the Year at a ceremony yesterday. That is it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's Earth Day, so we're going to be talking over tourism, regenerative tourism, and more. What do you think about efforts to better manage our numbers? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.